Good morning. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the fifth chapter, beginning in the 21st verse. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. The one of the leaders of the synagogue, named Jairus, came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. So he went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for twelve years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better and rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing who had happened, what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what he had said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he had said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha, kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was about 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, dear. I I dearly love preaching. I dearly love standing in front of you and, and offering what the word of God has inspired me to do, but... If truth be told, the thing I'm most comfortable doing is teaching Bible classes. I, I, there's just something that, about that that I really enjoy. So forgive me, if you will, if I at least begin this message by treating it as something of a Bible study. And, and if you want to follow along, there are Bibles actually in the racks again in front of you. You're welcome to turn to Mark's fifth chapter. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to include some, less, some uh, verses that Jessica did not read for us this morning. So... Let us begin. First, I want to point to the first verse that that was read for us. It's in Mark 5. It's in the 21st verse. 
And you just heard it a few moments ago, but there was a little phrase in there that might have been a bit of a throwaway, not of much interest. It said, a great crowd gathered around him, around Jesus, and he was beside the sea. Well, there's a little bit of geography there, and, and it's not unexpected that a big crowd would be around Jesus, except that sort of connects what went before that wasn't read for us. So if you back up to uh, verse 17, you find a very different sentiment by a very different group of people. In verse 17, the people that were gathered around Jesus were gathered around him not to admire him and to hear him and to witness his miracles, but they were demanding, pleading with him to please leave, get out of town. And one event follows the other. So let's turn first to these people who asked Jesus to leave and what that was all about. It seems that there was a man who was quite out of his mind. He lived among the tombs. And Jesus, when he came to this town among the Gerasenes, it's a Gentile land, this man came running out to Jesus and Jesus healed him of these demons that infected his life. Now the people who witnessed all of this were very afraid. They were afraid of this man, Jesus. They'd been afraid of the crazy man for a long time, used to break chains and all kinds of wild deeds. But now they were afraid of this man, Jesus. After all, who is it that can drive a legion of demons out of one person and, and drive those demons into a herd of pigs? That's scary. So they were afraid of Jesus. Oh, by the way, those demons, once they infected the pigs, caused the pigs to go running for a cliff, jump over the cliff and into the sea and drown. Remember, they're Gentiles. So their livelihood, their income, depended on those pigs that are now at the bottom of the sea. Not a good thing. So they're angry. They certainly weren't well served. Demons or no demons, their pigs were gone. So they were demanding that Jesus please get up and leave their town. And so all it took was one short boat ride across the lake. And when Jesus got to the other side, we see a very stark contrast. When he arrives on the, on the opposite shore, a great crowd gathers around him, admiring him and wanting to see and to hear more of what he had done in other places. Now, in these two vignettes, one read for us and one not, we see two reactions that people have to Jesus. They had these reactions to Jesus then, and if we're honest with ourselves, people have these kinds of reactions to Jesus now. The first is that people are curious. And when they're curious about Jesus, often they are led to belief. They come to know him and to love him. But others live in ignorance or they live in fear. And that leads them to disbelief or even rejection of Christ in their lives. We have all kinds of opposing viewpoints like that in our lives. Some folks, for example, wonder how a good God could possibly choose to die for sinners like us. Or they wonder how a good God could possibly allow suffering in the world that he created. We hear these disassociations all the time. Anyhow, when Jesus has barely made his way across the lake, when he was still standing on the shore, there was a ruler of the local synagogue, local, local synagogue, 
leader of the Jews in the area, a person with great worldly power who comes rushing out looking for Jesus, as Jessica read for us. Why does he do this? What's motivation? Well, maybe he heard what Jesus did elsewhere. Maybe, maybe just maybe, he'd heard Jesus teach in the temple sometime before. We don't really know. I mean, he doesn't have a cell phone to hear from the people on the other side of the lake what Jesus just did. But he knows somehow, and he comes rushing out to Jesus. And here we find another comparison with the earlier part of the fifth chapter, going back to the first verse, when that crazy man ran out from the tombs, there he met with Jesus. Now we have this temple, or this, excuse me, synagogue leader running out to meet with Jesus. Very similar dynamics, very different motivations. The first man who ran out of the tombs runs to Jesus and he is physically naked. He is physically bound up by these demons and needs relief. This man, Jairus, who comes from the local temple, a leader, is not physically naked. He is emotionally naked. He lays all of his fears, he lays all of his worries and all of those things that are pressing down on him in life, the most urgent things, right at Jesus' feet. This man, this second man, has a darling 12-year-old daughter. And we'll come back to that, that number, that number 12. It's a 12-year-old daughter, so hang on to that age, that span of time for a while. But this young, lovely young lady is lying close to death in the family home. In Jairus's understanding, and an accurate one, it would be Jesus who was this father's only hope for the girl's healing. The only hope. So the man runs to Jesus. He runs there, he falls at Christ's feet, and he gives himself totally, emotionally and spiritually to the Lord. He is hoping beyond hope that Jesus would come with him and save his daughter. Now the man comes despite his fears. His fears aren't obvious, but they're built into the society in which he lives. The, the first fear is not necessarily connected to the society, but it's, it's a pressing one. What if Jesus says no? What if he won't come? Then his daughter has no hope. That's certainly his number one fear. The other ones are more tied to the way life was in those days. I mean, after all, what about his social standing? The leaders of the Jewish cult were already plotting to kill Jesus. If he's going to Jesus to save his daughter, showing himself to be a believer in and a follower of Jesus Christ, what are the other leaders going to do to him? They're going to throw him out of the temple? Are they going to strike him of his priestly duties? He has to fear that. And he has to fear Jesus' reaction on another score, too. What if Jesus knows about what those leaders of the local synagogue and temple are doing? And he does. Would Jesus actually help someone who's associated with people plotting to kill him? That has to be a fear in this father's heart. What if Jesus says no because of that? He is desperate to save his daughter, however, and he gives his best plea. He acts as if he is, and he truly is, totally confident that Jesus could come and heal his daughter. If, if 
Jesus could just get to his house on time before his daughter passes away. And amazingly, his plea in the midst of that pressing huge crowd was answered in the affirmative. Yes, Jesus will come to his home. Thanks be to God. But that, that thankfulness with Jesus' answer quickly turns to frustration. The father is frustrated because the crowd is pressing in to get close to Jesus. It's it's an absolute crush. Nobody's moving. Progress in getting to his home and getting Jesus to his home was painfully slow. Less than half a step every once in a while because you can't push a great mass of people. Would they ever get to the father's home? He had to be thinking something like, blast this crowd. Why couldn't they just get out of the way? You know how you are at a red light, right? Imagine this. Why don't they just move? Don't they know his daughter is dying and time is of the essence? Don't they know that Jesus is the only only power on earth that can heal her? And they're preventing him from getting to where he needed to be? And at that moment, the story offers us a twist. There's another sufferer in the crowd. The 12-year-old girl wasn't the only one who at that moment was suffering. Another daughter of Eve was in agony. For 12 years, there's that number again, for as long as the little girl had been alive, for those same 12 years, there was a woman who had a condition that caused her to bleed. Bleeding was unacceptable in the Jewish understanding. It was korban. It it made the person unclean because blood was supposed to be inside the body. If it was outside the body, that was a condition of uncleanliness or korban in the Hebrew. This poor woman, suffering for all those years, had gone from doctor to doctor. She had spent all her money in the effort to be cured. But the cause of this flow of blood that she experienced was beyond any physician's ability to heal. Again, 12 years she suffered. 12 years she was ceremonially unclean. That meant she was unable to participate in any religious festival. It meant that she was unable to simply go to Sabbath worship. And she was unable to have meaningful contact even with her own family. She was shunned and she was ignored. If you can imagine the condition, it was sort of like having COVID to the extreme or being in a COVID community to the extreme for 12 consecutive years. It was a crushing affliction. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Let's just stop for a moment and think about what the scripture is saying to us here because it's a hard lesson and it's not a lesson that is often spoken. Here we have someone who was suffering from something that clearly was not her fault. It was something she, over which she had absolutely no control. And yet, this condition made her unacceptable, made her unclean in the Jewish society. The leaders and the priests didn't, in response to this, change any of God's laws concerning the understanding of uncleanliness with regard to the flow of blood. They changed not one law. 
They didn't try to find a, a workaround or, or new words to fit the subject. They didn't say, well, since it's not your fault, we won't keep you for worship, from worshiping. Um, instead, they said what they had always said. They said what scripture had revealed to them for generations. They said, sister, you are unclean. And until your bleeding stops, you're not allowed to participate in Jewish society. Now, we have no way of knowing, because we're not told, we have no way of knowing what kind of ministry this woman was able to receive apart from but the formal conduct of, of worship. But we can be certain, based on the words given to us by St. Mark, that the priests didn't just throw their laws and their traditions out. They didn't understand, they didn't throw out their understandings of, of God's scripture away. They didn't even suspend them for a time or excuse them in this case because of this woman's condition. They held fast to their long-given understandings. Sisters and brothers, the church today must pay attention to the truth of this. We cannot get rid of what God has ordained simply to make things easier for folks. Here's why. The danger that comes with throwing out scriptural teaching is that people won't then receive what they really need and what only the Lord Jesus can offer. You know, for this woman, it's, it's clear, being ceremonially unclean was tough. It was beyond tough. And on top of her bleeding, her isolation was absolutely excruciating. She was living, such as she was living, a very, very difficult life. That poor woman suffered immeasurably. But notice, it was that very hard existence that she lived through that moved her that day to sneak up and just try to touch the fringe of Jesus' clothing in the sure hope of being healed. Now, why did I describe her as sneaking up? Well, first, because she did. And, and second, because as an unclean person, in Jewish understanding, she was not allowed to touch anybody else. Nobody. And if she did, that other person was suddenly unclean themselves. And that other person would have to go through evening rituals to be made clean again so that that person could return to society. So this woman thought, she believed, she trusted, that if she was just able to touch the tassel on Jesus' cloak or his shawl, then she would be healed. And immediately, that's exactly what happened. She was healed. And so the lesson for us is to see what faith did. The problem was not the woman's inability to get into church. Her problem was not being whole. Her problem was not being healthy. Her problem was not being right with God. By reaching out to Christ in faith, Christ made her whole. Jesus healed her through her faith. And so we learn that if the church compromises on Christ's requirements for faith, then those who come won't receive his healing. It'll be removed from them. It'll be blocked from them. Jesus won't be able to reach out and restore those who need restoration, and others may lose their motivation to reach out to him at all. 
Instead, folks will be welcomed into what I call the church club. Church club may be nice, may look pretty, may have good friends in it, but a church club is no help at all to those who need spiritual healing. Church club cannot compare with the power of Jesus Christ and the power that that will surely deliver to each and every human soul. While all this was going on, it worried Jairus when Jesus stopped and looked for the person who reached out to touch him in faith. It worried him. And even the disciples weren't supportive. They made fun of Jesus. And the scripture, as you see it in your hands, makes no bones about that. They make fun of the Lord. After all, how could he have known that someone had touched the fringe of his, of his cloak in the middle of this huge pressing crowd? How could he have known that? It didn't matter to Jesus. He responded to the woman's faith. He finds her. He verifies her faith. And as Paul writes in Romans 10, 9, it is not enough to simply believe. It's not enough. One must confess aloud with your lips that Jesus is Lord. And this woman, believing in her heart, must confess with her voice that just that, that Jesus is Lord. He is the Son of God. And that is the confession that each and every one of us Christians is called to do as well. Now, it was tough for the woman to say that. It's not so tough for us in this room. But it was tough for her to say that. Because to speak meant she might be overheard and discovered by the local authorities. Remember, she's not, not allowed to touch or to speak in public with her condition. And she does both. Both things. Jesus demanded that of her. And look what happened. Look what happened. Everything was turned on its head. Instead of the unclean person touching the clean and making that clean person unclean himself, the exact opposite happens. The clean one, Jesus, makes the unclean now clean. The flow of blood had stopped. All excuses for excluding her were gone. Jesus tells her, daughter, your faith has made you well. And she hears the words that every Jew then and now wants to hear from God. She hears, go in peace and be healed. The God of the Old Testament who declares, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery, still acts to heal your every need. And he does the same for you. And while Jesus is saying these things, he's still speaking. Jairus' neighbors, uh, the chief priest at the local synagogue, makes his way through that crowd and tells Jairus that while they've been delayed and these things going on in the town square, Jairus' daughter has died. Imagine that man's pain. Imagine this father's despair. He had to want to shout out, if only that woman had waited her turn. Why did she have to jump in at such a crucial hour? But even before these dreadful words of his daughter's death can really sink in, Jesus is already saying, do not fear but believe. Wow. That's a tough commandment. It's a tough thing for any parent to hear in those circumstances. Just trust. Trust me, Jesus says. Don't fear, 
Don't let the worst fear, the fear that your child might die before you do, don't even let that grip you and take you into despair. Believe, trust me, says Christ our Lord to this grieving father. And so they go to Jairus' house. And there, his friends and his family are already mourning. And in the Middle Eastern tradition, that's not a quiet, sobbing thing. That's a loud wailing and making of noise and, and great histrionics. It's an obvious display of despair. And all the friends are in anguish. And Jesus tells them simply to be quiet. To be quiet. The girl is sleeping, he says. What a joke that must have seen. What a cruel joke to play on these parents. I mean, how could Jesus know that she's sleeping rather than dead? He hasn't even laid eyes on her yet. The the girl's clearly dead. I mean, the doctor called it, right? There's no pulse, there's no breathing. Hope is lost. She is gone. Jesus gets rid of all the people who thinks that this is the truth. He is the truth, not this. And then Jesus takes these parents and a few disciples he's brought with him, and he goes into the child. He reaches down, he takes hold of that lifeless hand, and he says, Little girl, get up. Talitha kum. Get up. And in a split second, immediately, Just as that woman had been restored to health in the town square, now this little girl, both of them having this 12-year history that overlaps each other, this little girl is resurrected to full life. She walks around. Jesus insists that she eats something. That's important. Why? Ghosts do not eat. Living people eat. This girl lives. Imagine... Imagine how all that wailing and grieving has turned to joy just outside that house when this news is delivered. We can imagine everyone's wonder at this man Jesus who can heal and also raise dead people. Miracles, they're called. (laughs) Who can do things like this? No one's ever seen a human do this. Turns out the answer to my question is only Jesus, the son of the living God can perform these things. Jesus requires that those who follow him and and see his miracles and experience them believe in him. Do you? Do you believe in him? Have the true stories contained in the Bible brought you to faith over time? Or, if you've already had faith or were introduced to that early in your life, have these accounts deepened your faith? God's word, faithfully received, brings meaning and fullness to the life that we endure. I ask you this morning, are you afraid? Are you afraid like those people of the garrisons of things that threaten you out in the world? Do those things frighten you? Are you worried about your own life today? Are you worried for a loved one's condition or for someone who has died or for someone who is this day sick? If so, then I ask you, have you placed all your hope in Christ? Is that where your hope is today? 
Jesus' words from this Bible selection come to us strongly. Do not be afraid. Believe. The gospel is shared in this place and places like this in order to to prove that Jesus is, in fact, the true Savior of the world and all the people in it. He is the resurrection and the life. He raised that little girl from the dead. He himself was raised from the dead. And he will raise you from the dead. At this point, a practice preacher would have a pithy little conclusion. Let me go a different direction. As as I prepared this, um, I read the writings of another pastor who had delivered a, a sermon on this collection of texts some years ago. And most pastors have. It's a a very popular preaching text. But this one preacher had a woman who was in the congregation the day he preached about it. And she went home and composed a poem that she later gave to her pastor. and, And he shared it with many others. I'd like to share that poem with you today. This woman writes, "'Twas the voice of the master.'" And the woman's heart beat faster and faster. Oop, let me start again. Skip the line. First line. Who touched me? T'was the voice of the master. And the woman's heart beat faster and faster. Trembling, she came and bowed her head. I touched thee, Lord, was what she said. But the master answered, go thy way. Thy faith has made thee whole this day. Have you touched me? I heard it, t'was the voice of the master, and oh, my heart beat faster and faster. You came with the crowd to God's house today, but I felt not your touch as you went your way. I was ashamed and bowed my head. Reach out a bit farther next time, he said. Amen.